0: The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to
1: another episode of the Clean Coders Podcast. This week, I'm talking to Chris Powers. Chris, do you want to say hello? Hey, everybody. This is Chris Powers, author of Clean Code in the Browser for Clean Coders. Nice. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, Max Coder's
0: Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Now, what else do you do? Because most people I'm talking to, clean coders
1: isn't their full-time thing. So, Yeah, it is not. My day gig is uh, the VP of engineering for a company called Thinkful. Thinkful is a company that provides education for folks who want to make a career change into technology, and so we have a number of different uh, five to seven month courses. Some of which we will actually guarantee you a job at the end of the experience. Oh, nice! I like those. Um, <laughs> I've, I've talked you know, to jobs few, are great. We like them too. Yeah, I got a few friends that work for a competitor.
0: They're more boot camp and less course. I guess it's like, well, you pay when you get a job. You know, I like that alignment, or yeah, the guarantees or things like that. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of people making that transition. Before we dive in and talk more about clean code, I'm curious,
1: what is kind of the path that you see people following that come through Thinkful? You know, it is interesting because at Thinkful, we're certainly trying to give people the best education that we can in a fairly limited amount of time. We're not talking about the kind of things that we talk about in clean coders, right? Because like right. folks aren't there yet. They're not ready for that yet. So to a large extent, we're optimizing to get people through the door, get them ramped up in understanding certainly the basics of programming understanding how web applications, for the most part, work, how to do some work on the front end, how to do some work on the back end, and have somebody really ready for that entry-level position at the next company um, or ready for an apprenticeship or something along those lines. And it takes it takes a lot. Uh, it mm-hmm. takes a lot of hours and a lot of personal initiative from our students, but the ones who are successful, we find continuing to be successful in the industry because turns out to continue your career, it takes that same level of gumption, that same level of initiative to keep growing and keep up with the trends and like just keep learning all the different facets of computer programming. Right. And so I'm still kind of thinking about what's the connection point between kind of this bootstrapping sort of education to clean coders, which is really targeting folks who are much more mature in their craft. Right. And at the end of the day, I think we have found the most success with mentoring relationships. One mm-hmm. of the unique things about Thinkful is that every student gets a mentor and they get weekly time with that mentor oh, wow. uh, who is a professional in the industry. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's a lot of what they're paying for. And we find that it's that human connection combined with the, some of the like, scale of technology and being able to serve curriculum online and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's that balance that really makes Thinkful work. And I think that that mentoring relationship, is cool to see when those are at least like setting people up for success to find that next mentor at the next company, right. because they realize the value that has. And certainly that I look back at my own career and I know that mentorship was a very meaningful part of my growth as a developer and certainly also in the engineering management space. Right. And being somebody who I never took a CS course I just kind of like learned for myself back in the mid 2000s, picked up a couple books here and there. Yep. And I made so many mistakes and so many <laughs> bad decisions that when I think about something like Thinkful or resources like Clean Coders, I'm like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, if only I had those back then.
0: I know, right? <laughs> so true. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's interesting because uh, that's one of the things people ask me, how do I level up? And that's one of the things I push them for is just go find a mentor. Well, how do I do that? Well, you go to the users group you pick out the handful of people that you think would teach you what you want to learn and then you go ask them.
1: Yeah, well, and one of the things I love about so many of the communities just in programming is Mm -hmm. that there's such a sense of folks wanting to give back because I think everybody identifies that in the world of open source, like we are all standing on shoulders of giants. We are all benefiting from uh, the benevolency of folks who've come before us or the folks who are just maybe that next step ahead of us or, or two steps ahead of us. And so it's cool to see even somebody who's only a couple of years into their journey mm-hmm. as a programmer looking for opportunities to reach back and help somebody out. Yep. You know, one of the things that Doc Norton, another uh, Clean Coders author, said at one point was that you're always looking on teams to have someone you can learn from who can kind of help pull you up the ladder, while also someone you can reach down to and help pull them up. And right. when you have those different levels of, of skill and experience, in a team or in an organization, you're setting everybody up to be able to contribute in both directions. And that's a really mm-hmm. healthy place for an organization to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because those people who are sort of one or two steps up, usually, or at least what I found for me, is if they're a step or two ahead of me, not a bunch of steps ahead of me, they're usually better mentors anyway, because they, they've kind of had that pain
1: recently enough to
0: help me out.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. At some point you start to get that curse of the master where you start to lose track of how you got to where you are or how it is that you make the decisions Mm -hmm. you do because now it's just in the back of your head. It's intuition rather than uh, a clear checklist of things you think about to make a decision. And so that could be a problem. So yeah, when you have folks who were only in that problem space a year ago, two years ago, they've got a very fresh perspective on it.
0: Yep, absolutely. Kind of making the transition then, uh,
1: at what point do people start caring
0: about things like clean code? It's a
1: great question. I have found it to be extremely varied, and it's usually varied on, I think there's a couple pieces. There's inputs. What are the inputs that somebody has that is telling them that there's another way than whatever they're doing right now? And I've seen situations in which you'll have a whole group of programmers who are all writing relatively poor code, but they're all doing it together and they're all like reinforcing each other's understanding that like this is just how we do it. We just mm-hmm. write code like this. And well, of course there's problems, but like that's that's how we do coding without them having that, you know, the the profit or the you know, somebody to come in and just be like, There is another way. We can show you another <laughs> way, right? You know, or or even just that person who who picked up that book or who watched that video, who have some more of those inputs. The people who are looking for better ways are the people who are finding better ways. I've been on teams previously where I've caught a bit of flack uh, from some of my employees because they're like, man, Chris, it seems like you're never satisfied with what we're doing. Like you're always telling us ways that we should improve. I'm sure part of that is on me, probably poor communication. But the other (laughs) part of it was understanding that getting better doesn't always mean that the current state is terrible. Right. You could be in a good space and still be trying to get to a great space. Right. You could always be Mm -hmm. trying to level up. And I think that there is a certain amount of uh, healthy insatiability that is beneficial for programmers where it's not that we hate what we're doing or the way that we're doing it, but it's that we're always curious about how it could be better, how we could go from good to great. Right. And I think that when you've got people who are tapped into that on teams and are working in that direction in a way that is productive, not in a way that's going to work against the team or against the initiatives that they have, but in a way that is you know, looking long-term and looking mm-hmm. for growth, that's always going to help. And that's a way of bringing along the folks who just aren't dialed into that attitude, bring them along with, because eventually they'll start to see the fruit coming from that. Right,
0: that makes sense. So you start deciding that, you know, maybe there is a better way and, you know, hopefully you have that healthy perspective of, yeah, you know, I'm doing better today than I was yesterday and I want to do better tomorrow than I am today. So it's not beating yourself up. You're just trying to make that, that motion forward.
1: Yeah. So I, I gave a talk a while back about refactoring and some ways of approaching refactoring that is, is healthy and will get you closer to success. Uh-huh. And one of them was that I said, you have to approach it with respect. Right. You actually have to respect the code base and the work that's been done before you, before you go in and change everything. Mm-hmm. Because it's easy as developers for us to look at some code and just be like, oh, that's a bunch of crap. That's terrible, right? <laughs> what moron came before me and did this? And By the way, it was me. Exactly. It was me. (laughs) It was someone like me. There were forces at play. There were forces at play. And the thing is, if you disrespect that and you don't at least take a moment (laughs) to consider that, like, someone with a rational brain actually did make these decisions, we miss things. And that's when a refactoring goes wrong because there were little requirements that were stuck into the code that looked kind of weird, and if you didn't give it the respect, you didn't understand what uh-huh. it was doing, you rebuilt the thing, and oh, look, that bug from two years ago came back. Or, you know, feature X no longer works because we missed something. We didn't give it that level of respect, right? right. And so I think that that's, it's always is a good thing to, to check ourselves because any code that is working is providing value. Now, when we're talking about coding quality, usually what we're talking about is not current state. Is it working or not? It's a question of, can we continue to keep it working to make it maintainable? Can this be a living system moving forward? And that's Mm -hmm. usually where we drop the ball. We'll get it working and that has value, but we can't sustain that value over time. Right. So when we're talking about clean code, just to kind of tie all
0: this together, how does clean code and working code, how do the two go together then?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just see clean code as the way to keep working code working over time. <laughs> okay, uh, I've, I've had to work on any system where somebody was just like, you know what, this is done. Let's just hang it up and never touch it ever again. Uh, <laughs> I dream of the day. I dream of the day, but that day has not come in 15 years, so I'm not holding my breath. These things are always living. They're always changing. Yeah. Um, Bob Martin, uh, he says in one of his videos that the value of software is its softness. The fact that it can change is actually the value of the software. And when it ceases to be able to change is when the value approaches, perhaps asymptotically, zero. <laughs> and that's when we start thinking about like rewriting things. You know, When yeah. we rewrite a project, we've acknowledged that this has zero value or even negative value that we're actually going to rebuild the whole thing, right? right? Very sad situation to be in, and yet it happens all the time. When I think about clean code, I'm thinking about what are the patterns that over the the last many decades that we've discovered as an industry and yet we have really short memory as an industry. We forget Mm -hmm. things really fast or we didn't understand them. You can say that about every five years, the number of programmers doubles, which means that like there's a whole batch of folks who didn't necessarily, they weren't there five years ago to know what the best practice was at that point, right? So institutionally, we lose knowledge really quickly or you know, we also get drunk on building our own things and our own ideas. And so we'd much rather find our own solution, generally speaking, than to use somebody's, you know, something that we learned from the eighties or the seventies, you know, and we're starting to see more talks now, which I love to see where people are going back and being like, Oh, look, all these things that we're doing in react, for example, these ideas existed in like the fifties and the sixties, right? We're just kind of rehashing a lot of this stuff. And when I look at the solid principles, a couple of them are from the 80s, a couple from the 90s. I think Single Responsibility was the only one that actually got it, its name in like 2004 or something like that. And certainly the idea preceded well before mm-hmm. 2004. Yeah. But like these are not new ideas, but they're good ones. They haven't gotten disproven yet. They haven't become, you know, unuseful yet. And so yeah. it certainly helps for us to be able to get these ideas, and then think about how do we integrate them in the work that we're doing? How do we make good decisions? Because we've got a bunch of tools in our pocket.
0: You have a video series. I almost said course, but it's, I think there is a distinction there. But yeah, it, it walks you through building clean code for the browser. And yeah, the, the primary focus there that I saw was solid principles. Mm-hmm. So how do the solid principles play out in a language like JavaScript, for example, where it's not, it's sort of object-oriented? Kind
1: of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> JavaScript is what you wish it to be, I think, is, is how it works. Yeah, it was an interesting challenge. I knew that I had never heard anyone really talking about the solid principles as applied to JavaScript, to the web. Uh, I, I even mm-hmm. talked a little bit about HTML and CSS for a few of those. And part of it is because, to some extent, they're not directly applicable. You know, I talked in this series about how a few of them, like the Liskov Substitution Principle Interface Segregation, you know, these are all about interfaces, which kind of assumes that you're in a language that has interfaces, which certainly JavaScript does not, at least not without something like TypeScript or Flow tacked onto it. Yeah. So it was an interesting discovery process to think about how these ideas apply. And spoiler alert, it turns out they do. Because at the end of the day, things like interfaces, whether or not they're a language construct, it doesn't really matter. They still exist. It's just whether or not we're talking about them. In dynamic languages, we usually more talk about things like duct typing, the Mm -hmm. shape of objects, things like this, which really, they're all just synonyms for interfaces. It's just that at some point, we had a lot of disgruntled Java programmers who didn't want to think about interfaces anymore. And we got some new words, and new languages, right? But at the end of the day, it's all the same kind of stuff. And I think what we're seeing right now, which is fascinating, is we're seeing TypeScript blow up. We're oh, seeing yeah. it get huge. The growth, uh, it, it was something like, oh gosh, what was it? One of those end-of-year reports, I want to say, showed that now we're at maybe 20 to 30% adoption across the industry. And like a year or two ago, it was like 2 or 3%. I'm making numbers up, but it was a really big jump. <laughs> and it's only going to keep growing because we have a whole new generation of programmers who are starting to realize that... These are pretty nice tools, all the static analysis and the fact that um, we're talking about shapes, about interfaces, uh, you know, about the, you know, these classes in explicit terms rather than just like sneaky implicit terms have been huge. So I think we're only going to see these kinds of principles being more obviously applicable to the web and to JavaScript, TypeScript flow specifically, which is exciting. But even if you're doing just plain old JavaScript there's a lot to be learned from these things. And there's at least general principles that we can apply, even if we're not doing it to the letter of the law. Yeah, it's interesting
0: you bring that up. I mean, the one that comes to my mind is State of JS, mm-hmm. um, which is a survey that goes around about JavaScript. I think they're still running it right now for the end of 2019. But yeah, they get thousands and thousands of developers. And yeah, you know, we're seeing a huge surge on behalf of TypeScript And what's really interesting to me about it is like you've gotten like full-throated adoption now from Angular or, (laughs) you know, some Mm -hmm, of these other mm -hmm. communities and, you know, React and Vue are looking at, okay, how do we do this? I think Vue actually announced that they were, you know, they were making TypeScript the blessed way to do it, I guess. And so Mm. it's just really, really fascinating to see, yeah, that level of adoption and, and all of the good stuff that comes out of it. I don't know if there's really a good way of tracking exactly why, but yeah, there's definitely movement there.
1: Well, Um, over the last 15 years too, we've seen a really interesting shift in the identity of a, quote, front-end developer. mm -hmm. When I first started programming back in like 2004, 2005, um, a front-end developer was basically somebody who was taking the crappy HTML and CSS work off of the hands of the, quote, real programmers who had no, <laughs> no time for such nonsense. I had a conversation with Bob Martin because I had to ask him, I'm like, you know, like in the 90s, for example, was there a front-end developer? Like, what did that even look like? Because I, I honestly didn't know. And he basically said no. At that point, the UIs that were being used, it was all using the SDKs of uh, the platforms that you were building for. And so, you know, you could only do so much with UIs, period. Like, you didn't have that many choices. And so it was mostly up to, like, some of the marketing folks to decide, like, what it should look like. And then the programmers were just kind of connecting UI pieces that were provided Mm -hmm. uh, by the platform. And what really wasn't until the explosion of the web when there was this quickly growing set of tools inside the browser in order to do genuinely interesting things, you know, from a UI perspective. And that's about when the front-end developer kind of role started to show up. And it was people like me, to some extent, who had not been programmers before and who kind of like showed up and just realized, well, this is kind of crappy work, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but I could do it. I can come onto a team and provide value. And then the, quote, real programmers can go do something <laughs> that they thought was more Real interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then we went through things like Ruby on Rails, which is this kind of renaissance of, again, folks who came from my background, which is a little more design-oriented rather than CS-oriented. Yep. That's like, where I come in, by the way.
0: Okay, yeah. Same I got it on right? Rails,
1: so yep. Yeah, so a lot of us caught that wave, which was an interesting wave. And there was a lot of good and a lot of wacky stuff that came out of that yes. wave. That's um, totally fair. And so then I think from, oh, I'm going to say 2008 until 2015, you had front-end programmers who were doing more and more real programming work, and yet were still treated as these second-rate citizens to some extent, because there was this historical context of like the real programmers did the the server-side stuff. And still today, if you look at salary bans for a lot of companies, you're going to see that first and second-class citizens still entrenched in the kind of money that we will give to developers. But Mm -hmm. now is interesting because the last few years with the the maturity of the JavaScript frameworks, we're seeing like real, real programming happening on the front end. Oh, yeah. Um, And it's it's finally being I mean, it's obvious uh, at this point, because the complexity of getting into the industry on the front end now versus, you know, when you and I got in. You know, fifteen years ago or whatever is completely different. Oh, it's yeah. way more complicated, and way more difficult. There's real programming and stuff like the SOLID principles actually matter. Uh, and so it's interesting to see that enormous shift in the role of a front end developer. And even now, it's getting fractalized out to folks who are more like on the CSS side of of the JavaScript spectrum versus the programmy side of the JavaScript, you know, which is not a particularly fair thing to judge either but it's just interesting to see that fractalization see the the roles changing very dramatically yeah yeah and it really boils down to in a lot of ways what we value right
0: the front end is now the user experience and we value that much much more than you know 10 years ago 15 years ago when it was we need a functional back end and it's just kind of a an interface that we paint onto the front Right. And, and, you know, so now we value the front end logic. We value the front end code. We value how it behaves and the size. You know, we hear that all the time, you know, how big is your payload on the front end and and all Mm -hmm. of these things. And people are realizing that there's real money won or lost by people's experience. And so,
1: yeah, well, and the fact that the browsers aren't terrible anymore, like they were 10, 15 <laughs> years ago, that sure helps. Um, yeah, standardization
0: has made a big difference there, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, well, and it's also interesting to see the way that, you know, Google is putting a lot of pressure onto folks in order to improve the uh, the speed and performance. I know pretty soon they're going to start labeling applications as slow if they don't meet certain numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody wants to see slow pop up at the top of the browser. So, It's interesting to see how there's a culmination of these forces that thankfully, I think, are are pushing the technologies in the right direction. But boy, it has definitely made front end a much more uh, significant endeavor, a much more costly endeavor. It's akin now to having, you know, your iOS app, your Android app, your web app. You know, they all kind of have the same level of complexity and challenge at this point.
0: Yep, absolutely. So all in all, coming back to the idea of clean code, like mm-hmm. what is clean code? Not just in the browser, but just in general. Like, can you look at code and say it's clean code? Are there certain markers that you're going to find in clean code? You know, you mentioned solid principles. Does that define clean code?
1: What What are we looking at here? I would most generally say the clean code is code that can be easily changed. I'll boil okay. it down to that. If it can be easily changed, then that is... The goal. Um, I the think goal you just where, Bob Martin there. <laughs> well, you know, he's got a couple of good ideas there. But yeah, you know, make it easy to change. Now, how do we do that? And that becomes a whole bunch of ideas, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and that's where uh, the solid principles come in. You know, I think about Kent Beck and his, you know, four principles for simple design. That's, to a large extent, what that's all about. Like All of mm-hmm. these principles then are just, how do we make our code more, more resilient and, and easy to change, knowing that the changing is going to be the most value that it can provide. And then I think it's, uh, there's a huge amount of judgment that is involved as well. And some of the videos that I've put together, uh, like the open-close principle, for example, I openly acknowledge that you could run away and get crazy with the open-close principle. You could try using kind of that plug-in-oriented architecture in everything that you do so that no matter what, everything's going to be extensible. And your boss should probably fire you because that would be a terrible use of your time. <laughs> uh, because we also have to admit that like, not everything is going to change. The system as a whole is going to change for sure. Yeah. But any particular class, any particular file... you know. In fact, a lot of times I've been telling uh, my crew recently how can you make your classes as immutable as possible, right? How do you make your code as immutable as possible, which to a large extent is what open closed is talking about as well as the single responsibility. Could Mm -hmm. we encapsulate an idea and an abstraction in such a way that there is very few reasons why it would need to change unless if like the identity of that module needed to change. right? Right. And if that's not the case, and usually it's not the case, we just leave it alone, just kind of let it hang out. So That ends up, a lot of making a system be changeable is not requiring pieces of it to change for the overall thing to change. And so, but judgment calls, acknowledging the fact that like, why would I use open-closed principle in a module where I can't really imagine a world in which this changes significantly or where I need to to change or Mm -hmm. uh, add to this? It doesn't make any sense, right? My personal guidance on something like open-closed is, apply open-closed like the second time you change something. (laughs) Write it. If there's not a totally obvious way that you know this needs to be extended, just write it. Now, when you need to go in and extend it, that's when you start thinking about like, okay, well, could I do some refactoring in the original code so that I can now cleanly extend this class with whatever the new functionality is that I'm adding? But I didn't need to pre-optimize that. Right.
0: So it changes easily. And then, yeah, we've got these principles in there. So how do you know what the right amount of whatever principle, you know, open, close, or, you know, the substitution principle, I can't remember, Liskov,
1: is that it? Liskov substitution, yes. It's, yeah, yeah it, it's the, the least fancy of all of the solid principles. It's frankly, got a funny because, name. <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's problem. Funny. Poor Barbara Liskov, yeah. Yeah, and how do you know when to apply them? Uh, so it, for me, it's, um, <laughs> I tell my teams oftentimes, solve the problem you actually have. We don't need yeah. to solve the problems we don't have yet. There will be another time and a place to solve the problems we don't have yet, primarily when the problem actually happens. Let's solve the problem that we have right now. And a big problem that we have right now and with that we always have, and I think this is the second part of the maintainability, uh, You know, part of it is making the system easy to change. A big way that we make a system easy to change is by making the system legible. Right, And that's why, you know, Ken is Beck so is, yeah, and so in his, uh, you know, his four principles of simple design One of them is it needs to express the intent of the author, which I love the wording of that, express Uh the intent of the author, which means don't just have it tell you what it's doing. And sometimes that can be convoluted enough to understand what it's doing. (laughs) But the intent is the why, right? It's like trying to understand why did the author make this decision? And it's always best to do that in the code itself. And if you can use good naming, to express the intent, that's always going to be the best way. If you have to throw some comments in, personally, I'm kind of anti-comment. I think that usually when I see comments in code, it's making up for poor naming of functions, Mm -hmm. or oftentimes it's a 30-line long method with four comments in there saying, this is what this section does, this is what that section does. And really, that's just four functions waiting to happen, right? Each of those with a good name. Some of my younger developers, I, I go through the idea of Uh, comment-driven refactoring, which is that you first go through and you comment an entire file of everything that's doing. Uh Then you go through and you make every single comment pointless by extracting that functionality into a well-named function until you don't have comments anymore. Oh, interesting. Uh, Because you explained everything that's happening by using small well-named functions to encapsulate those ideas. You didn't need Mm -hmm. the comments anymore and you got rid of them. And then I just put a big fat comment at the top of every class to talk about like how this is supposed to be used and like, what were the ideas behind this class? And, like, what is it trying to accomplish? Because those, that's not always clear in a class, like how it's supposed to be used and things like that. So you need a little bit of prose right. for that. And again, putting that documentation as close to the code as possible and in the code is always the best. Don't put that in a Confluence document, for God's sakes. Don't <laughs> <I like that.
0: laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, you've talked a little bit about how you use this at Thinkful. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing a code review or something, how
1: are you looking at this at Thinkful? At Thinkful, I've got three things that I ask for my developers. I tell them, if you, if you do these three things, I will be happy. And if not, we will have a conversation. It's focus on quality. Keep your work in process or your whip low and deliver early and often. Those are the three things. And so everything else that my team does, it's explorations and how we can do those three things better. How can we have higher quality, both in terms of the code and the end product for our users? How do we do fewer things at once so we can get more done? Mm-hmm. And when we're getting stuff done, how can we shoot small pieces of iterative value out as fast as humanly possible? in order to build trust with their users, trust with their stakeholders, and to just demonstrate that the engineering team is firing on all thrusters. And we're demonstrating that by you know, regularly delivering this code. And so you know, here we're talking a lot about the, the quality. Although the interesting mm-hmm. thing is that I think clean code applies to these other areas as well. Because when we think about clean code, modularity is a big component of clean code. Having well-modularized code then unlocks capabilities to be able to be much more iterative, much more Mm -hmm. agile in the way that we develop our software. When we have a lot of different modules, we're stepping on each other's toes uh, less, we are working in a more immutable way. And Mm so our usually code reviews and whatnot are more simple because it's more append-only coding rather than Uh just getting into the guts of something and changing things in a way that's hard to understand what's happening. So quality actually fuels our ability to keep our whip low. And quality fuels our ability to deliver early and often. It's actually the mm-hmm. king of the three, which maybe right. is a little counterintuitive. I honestly believe that that is the, it's the bedrock that the other things are built upon. And so to directly answer your question, so you know, in pull request situations, we're doing code reviews. I think there's, I kind of look at it in a few different tiers. I mean, I think that there's a few things that are like must-haves. So, for example, if I, if I see folks who are throwing warts onto the code base, meaning that we just took the most direct line from where we are to the thing that's going to solve the immediate problem, but with no consideration for the ecosystem, no consideration for how that's going to change the maintainability of the system. And we basically just took like a 100 line method and we slapped 10 more lines <laughs> onto it. That's one of those things where I'm like, hey, you know, glad it works. And I'm glad that you wrote a test that shows that it works. Let's refactor right. this a bit so that we're not, you know, we're leaving the campsite cleaner than when we found it. That, mm-hmm. The code scout rule, right? The Code Scout rule, I think, is incredibly important. I refer to it all the time. I think that it's, it's a very pragmatic approach. You don't boil the ocean by trying to improve the entire code base all at once. That's right. just going to get people frustrated and confused. We are aligning the way that we are paying down tech debt and the way that we are improving the code base with the goals of the organization and, and of the product by investing in the things that are changing right now. Rather than investing in the things that might change somewhere down the road, right. we don't really know. And I've found that that's a really, like, that helps the conversations between developers and, and product managers mm-hmm. if they even need to happen at all, where we right. say, hey, you know, we need a couple extra days to clean this up or a few extra hours to do this or that. And when we know that that's going to help us make professional changes and meet the needs of the customer in the next few days because we're keeping our whip low and we're delivering early and often, those are easy conversations. The hard conversations are, hey, We need to stop for a quarter and redo this entire system because you know we kind of did unprofessional things for the last year, and that's that's (laughs) where teams just crash and burn.
0: I've had that conversation with the boss once, and that was yeah, it's not not great. I wasn't happy
1: either. (laughs) I was at a company, a large company, where we stopped product development for nine months to completely rebuild the entire application. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the product managers did for those nine months. <laughs> I think they drank a lot of coffee and had sleepless nights. The good news is it worked after nine months. The bad news is, oh my gosh, how many millions of dollars? There's probably $40 million of work, you know, to, to rebuild this thing from scratch. It was bananas. Oh, don't, yeah. don't get there. Clean code helps you not get there.
0: Yeah the flip side is, is that a lot of people want to move fast and they feel like they're moving fast when they're getting more features and things in.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: is there a way to balance that? Because sometimes there are business reasons for you to need to have it done in a certain time frame, And it feels like quick and dirty is the only way to get there. Is that an illusion? Or is that sometimes actual reality and you just have to, you know, I think
1: that it's, it's a foggy area where I think a lot of people make bad decisions so to, to refer to Doc Norton again, he has a couple of videos about technical debt on clean coders. And he talks about kind of this two-by-two grid of professional or unprofessional and intentional or unintentional tech debt. And looking at which quadrant would a certain change fall into. Ward Cunningham, when he originally talked about tech debt, it was extremely prudent. It was, it was much more just about the idea that there are it wasn't about poor quality. It was just about certain things were not implemented yet. Certain functionality did not yet exist. And they knew that they would have to put that in at some point. But it was intentional. They made it, uh, that decision intentionally, and they looped in the business owners about it. And it was professional in that they weren't slapping stuff together. They were writing good code. They just didn't write all of it yet, right? They shipped before right. it was all done. And so it falls into the, quote, good tech debt category. Right. Most of what we talk about now when we talk about tech debt is not that, right? Yeah. It's either we just threw stuff together because we it was unintentional. We didn't know what we were doing. We've only been coding for two years and we're doing the best with what we can. But like, we just didn't know how to build good systems. Or we honestly just were unprofessional and we built code that we knew was going to fall apart. And if we were architects building a building, we would be thrown in jail. But we build software, so we get away with these things sometimes, right? And so I think it's important to try to identify like, where we're cutting those corners. I find the tech debt, it doesn't just slow me down in a month or in two. It slows me down tomorrow when I start writing crappy code where I'm just cutting corners and like I'm not Uh writing things in a clean way, it slows me down tomorrow, if not later today. (laughs) Like there's an almost immediate impact on my ability and the ability of people around me to get stuff done when we are creating like unprofessional uh, or unintentional code. And Uh so I do largely disagree with that classic you know, startup the idea that like, well, if we if we don't get this together, the, the company's going to fail or whatever. It's a factor. It's one thing to consider, but it's not the only thing to consider. And we should be thinking about what's the impact on our speed by cutting these corners. And it's not just going to hurt us in a year. It's going to start hurting us tomorrow. And that adds up right. really quick. So I guess the other question then is, since we're talking
0: now about changeability and maintainability and, you know, some of these practices here is, how do you identify that friction? Because sometimes I get in and I start working on a system and it turns out it does have some tech debt, right? There's something mm-hmm. there that's slowing me down, but I'm so focused on the problem that I don't actually see that there's friction occurring. So mm-hmm. are there code smells or red flags or things like that that kind of raise those issues and make me go, all right, I got to stop and take care of this right now because it's, you know, it's, it's a friction point.
1: Yeah, I think legibility is an early warning sign. <laughs> even if you don't see like the whole system or don't understand a whole system that you just stepped into, Mm -hmm. you can step into a single class and you either understand what that class is doing or you don't. That's, That's fairly clear one way or the other. And so I think that if there's poor legibility, then that's something that you should immediately start thinking about and trying to figure out. Because if you don't understand what it's doing, you're going to have a hard time making changes to it. And certainly in the past, I've made a lot of Poor changes and bad decisions based off of partial information, partial understanding of how a system works, making assumptions and then finding out those assumptions were wrong.
0: So is poor legibility when I stop and go, okay,
1: so what's actually happening here? Yeah, to a large extent. I think it's, um, you know, we talked about the the intent of the author, but also just what is it literally doing? And sometimes that's not clear either, right? And usually that's uh, poor modularity. It's usually a number of concerns getting mixed together in a way that is kind of complicated and hard Mm -hmm. to understand what's happening. And so when you see the hundred line long method or the thousand line long class, you know, be sure that clearly there's no single responsibility here. There's probably, you know, a whole mix of of interfaces or a complete disregard for interfaces going on here. This was just wart after wart after wart slapped onto some existing thing Mm -hmm. in order to take that like closest A to B path without any consideration for the ecosystem. And so what do you do with that? I mean, it depends on the situation. Like you could imagine a lot of the agile guys in the the 2000s, early 2010s would talk about using tools like uh, test-driven development and refactoring as discovery tools, as well as production tools. So what does it look like to lay down tests and do refactoring as a way to actually learn what a class does and how it works, rather than just using those techniques to continue to build onto it? And I've found those techniques occasionally to be useful. It's not fast, but you do walk away with a pretty intimate understanding of the code. Once you've actually like, made sure you understood the test, maybe add some additional tests, and you did some refactoring, you come away with a strong understanding of how that thing works. So if you have the time for it, that that's the sort of thing that works well. And if not, you have to start thinking about, you know, legacy systems, uh, kind of techniques. You think about Michael Feathers and his book, you know, are there ways that you can treat like this legacy system uh, of spaghetti as a bit of a black box and you just start identifying API points that you want to interact with. And then the rest, you just kind of like, for now, abstract away, but you focus on just a few key areas. And can you start to create good code, good patterns in those key areas so you can still be productive moving forwards. That makes sense. I guess what I'm looking for is like
0: something that I can kind of install in my head as an interrupt sequence and go, oh, I've got tech debt here, right? And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, you've pointed out a bunch of those. Are there some that are just more common than others?
1: Yeah, so I think the uh, single responsibility principle, bar none, is is the one that like is most useful in all the places and is oftentimes not, regarded in code or it's very easy to break it right that's a big one to be looking out for and if you're looking to improve the you know some existing code that's usually the first place that I go I talked about the refactoring uh or the the comment driven refactoring and that's actually a good practice in a situation like this if you get to something where it's clear that there's a bunch of responsibilities and you'd like to start breaking those up Not only does comment-driven refactoring allow you to go through methodically, identify the different ideas and pull them out into other functions, but it might even be other classes. You might find ways to modularize one class into several because you identified several different responsibilities, some formatting over here, some business logic over here, some data access over here. And now those are some seams you can start to pull on and pull these things apart to modularize the code. And once they're modularized, then all of a sudden things like unit testing and just general comprehension of the system become much, much easier. So I'm always looking for those seams, seams to pull things apart when it's long. Because to to your question of like, what are the the first things that you notice? I think just the size of a file or the Mm -hmm. size of a class is, you know, it slaps you in the face immediately when you see that. 5,000 line long class. And so that's that's a great, how much effort it actually ends up being and how like prudent it is to do that at a given time is up to the judgment of a, a developer. But I think that that's one technique that I really like using if I've decided, yes, this is where I need to invest right now.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that I'm, I'm looking at is that, and I think, you know, you brought up prudence because sometimes the refactor is, oh, I made this class nicer, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, okay, well, in order for me to refactor this into a couple of classes, to do it properly, I need to go tweak the database design. I have some forms that now need to be aware that they're dealing with. Or do I maintain the interface and then just change everything below it? Or yep. So there there are other considerations, right? It's not always just... Because uh, I think sometimes we look at uh, refactoring and it's like, well, yeah, I'll just go in and I'll fix the way this class works. And sometimes it's it bubbles up and bubbles down in the system, and so... Yeah, you've got to
1: make a judgment call on that. Absolutely. And again, the business priorities drive change. Change drives the decisions that we're making. Right. And so we can't pretend that our code base is somehow separate from the business that it's serving. Like right. these things are very interoperable. Like one powers the other and the other, you know, is power. Yeah. Like it goes both ways. And so that's why, again, the Code Scout rule so beneficial because it's driven by business requirements. Plus the need to do professional changes. And that's where the, the beautiful, I think, alignment of, of the product or the business and the engineering department, right? We've, we as engineers decide what professional software development is. The business brings us challenges and ways that we can create substantial value to the business. And we put those together. <laughs> yep. And that's where, when, when you can get that working and you have respect between these groups, and again, the group, I refer to them as two groups, but they're not, right? What value is one without the other? It, right. We're all together in this, right? But when there's mutual respect between different roles on these cross-functional teams, that's when I think we, we create the right environment to be able to focus on the quality that as professional software developers, we know is going to be a business asset at the end of the day. Yeah. So much of what we do is turning software into liabilities, you know, so much that it's like a meme, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, and we certainly say the best software is the software you didn't have to write. And that's always true, but it should be because that's prudent, not because any software that we create is inherently a liability. And so how do we create software that accelerates over time rather than decelerates, that grows over time rather than decays? It's all about quality. Makes sense. So uh, we're getting kind of toward the end of
0: our time. One thing that I wanted to ask is, as VP of, uh, you know, development or engineering, I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly what you're Engineering, talking. yep. Because one of the hardest problems that I've run into in software development isn't development, it's leadership, right? Mm. And it's, okay, I'm running this organization, or I'm a team lead and I'm running this team. I need to be writing this quality software. How do you lead this and get... because? Honestly, if if you're pushing, 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 and your team isn't following, 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 you have a problem and you're not going to get these outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you get everybody on board and everybody kind of pulling in the same direction so that you get the outcomes that we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Something I've heard is that if everyone had the same knowledge, expertise, and context as everyone else on a team, we would all make the same decisions all the time because given the right level of context and understanding and expertise, like we would come to the same natural conclusions. Now, what happens? We don't have any of that, right? Right. And so we all come to different conclusions or have different ideas about things. And by the way, diversity of thought, very important. Uh, It's a useful thing. Now, we also as a team need to have some shared values and some shared ideas of what does it mean to be a developer on Team X, Company Y to be a software, professional software developer in the industry, perhaps. And we have to get that right. We have to have a shared understanding about that, right? That's one of the reasons why I've rallied my team around those three things, because that's how we do it at Thinkful, by Mm -hmm. definition, you know? So and there's still wiggle room inside there. We're always learning how to interpret those things. But we at least have a shared North Star in terms of what we're expecting from each other and from ourselves, So I think that the context piece, what can I do as a leader to give my team the context that I have, either through my own experiences or from looking like in a bigger way at the business as a whole, how can I share that context with them so that they're closer to making some of the same decisions that I do and having the same uh, values around quality and things like that? Some of that is actually kind of permission. Unfortunately, a lot of us have been in, environments where we have been expected to cut the corners that was an Mm -hmm. expectation right because somehow quality code was like this luxury you know we heard words like gold (laughs) plating our systems right Yep. and i'm like have you seen these systems we're not even close to gold this is tin (laughs) plating at best you know i got aluminum siding here that's that's what we're plating it with got some plywood and flashing up Oh my gosh, exactly. So, (laughs) you know, I think there's a miscalibration there and I think people Uh got beat into submission to some extent to think that like that's not something I can spend time doing or moving Mm -hmm. towards. So that's part of the problem. We need to reverse that idea and make sure that everyone understands I, like as an executive, I want to pay. I want to invest in the team doing quality stuff because I believe there's an ROI to it. So part of it, sharing that context. Another part of it is just skills. It's skills building because Mm -hmm. you could like want quality so bad and have no idea how to actually get there. And that's where a lot of developers are. Understandably, half of our workforce has been doing this for five years or less. We're still figuring out how to make React work. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're not just, you know, we're not engaging on a lot of these topics. And so something that I'm doing is uh, in 2020, along with making sure that our developers have personal growth goals and making sure that those are well aligned with building quality. We're also doing team exercises, actually taking an hour or two uh, out of a sprint and saying, we're going to do a a kata. We're going to do some Mm -hmm. kind of a shared experiment or share coding experience to play around, to try some things, to see what happens, uh, to practice, doing some practicing. And I think that it does a couple things because one, it puts your money where your mouth is. We're actually spending time to focus on this stuff, right? Right. Like, hopefully, the team believes that this is important when we're actually spending time mm-hmm. to do it, right? And hopefully, we are we are seeing growth out of that. And in pull requests, then where we see, oh, this person made a good decision here that a month ago they may not have. Calling it out, praising that. Um, you know, we have our weekly staff meetings. We want to be able to call out appreciations to our team members who are clearly trying to step that up and who are clearly, you know, diving in, trying new things and trying to figure out how to embody quality. Yeah, makes sense. And I love just the
0: kind of the blend of, you know, demonstrating and talking about it. And I mean, they're all levels recognition. And I think people are looking for like a silver bullet when we talk about some of this stuff. And I don't think there is one. I think, I think all of these different things play in.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that there's macro silver bullets. Uh, Fair and enough. Again, again the, the focus on quality, keep whip low and deliver early and often. Like, I think if there was a silver bullets, now it's not always obvious how to do it. And that's the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's trying to go from those North Stars to how do I put this into practice and that's always highly situational because the work that we do is situational. How often do we build the same thing a second time or a third time? Yeah. Probably not too often. We've got machines to do that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So we're always building things that we haven't built before. And that's where it's as it's much more improv <laughs> than it is like just taking best practices and rolling them out. It's, yeah. uh, it's discovery.
0: Makes sense. We're really at the end of the time.
1: I'm curious, what are you working on these days? So so big focuses for me. I've been focusing much more on some of the executive level kind of stuff. I've been doing a lot less of the actual code writing these days, trying to figure out how to scale teams. Um, our, our company was acquired uh, last quarter. And all of a sudden, like we're, being, we're looking to do a lot of growth. And so trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to dramatically scale up the way that we're building our software in a way that is going to you know, not have the wings fly off uh, as we take off and continue to, (laughs) to grow things? How do we take what has made our engineering culture successful up to this point and double the number of people and still be successful with it, knowing that that isn't staying static, it's changing, but it's still adhering to some of those same principles? How do we, you know, pull in and train up more leadership on the team and continue to level up the skills this year in order to have the right combination of team members so that everybody's got somebody to reach up to and somebody's got somebody they can help pull up. These are all the things that are, are on my mind <laughs> to a large extent. Uh, and one of these days, hopefully I'll, I'll sit down and maybe write some more Elixir code because I thought that was super neat and have still not done anything actually useful with it yet.
0: Nice. We should definitely check out Elixir Mix. That's our Elixir podcast. So,
1: All right. Sounds great. <laughs>
0: One last thing, and that is if people want to follow you online, on Twitter, on GitHub, anywhere else where you're active or thinking out loud, where mm-hmm. do they find that stuff?
1: So I'm Chris J. Powers uh, across the internet, and chrisjpowers.com is uh, the best place to go. I've got links to the Clean Coder videos there, as well as a whole bunch of other conference talks and things like that that I've done over the last several years. So it's a good resource for anyone who wants to be thinking more about code quality, about building better teams, technical leadership, Uh, there's a few resources that might be useful and my contact info is there as well. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well,
0: let's go ahead and wrap this up. We'll have to have you back and talk about some of these other ideas that you've covered for clean coders or just things that you're thinking about on your team. I'd love to just sit and pick your brain for another few hours. Charles, this has been fun. I would love to come back. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you.